sorry. That's, uh, don't be sorry. That was preferable. Um, morning, everyone. My name is Paul, and it is a great privilege to be with you this morning uh, to teach the Bible uh, and discuss a little bit about our heads and our hearts and how they work. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. And Preachers don't normally like to start with disclaimers because it's like all the wrong energy uh, to begin a preacher with. So you've got to kind of know when you start with disclaimers, you should probably lean in because things are going to get exciting. My first disclaimer, uh, which should be kind of throughout this sermon series as we discuss mental health, is that we are not mental health professionals uh, and we are grateful for them and believe in them and the drugs that they sometimes need to use and the techniques that they sometimes need to use. Um, and it, in, in no way, shape or form are we trying to take the place of um, that mechanism that God has given us. I think in some cases that's really necessary. Um, another disclaimer uh, is that this morning as we wade into what I'm aware is incredibly sensitive and painful stuff, um, this is actually altogether the wrong format to be doing it in. Far too much advice is given by human beings, I feel, and nowhere near enough listening is done by human beings. And perhaps you're here this morning on behalf of others. You're engaging in a conversation about heads and hearts, not so much for the sake of your own, although if you're wise, you know you probably need this as well, but you may well be aware that there are people in your life who are taking strain with anxiety or depression or lack of motivation or lack of clarity or feel stuck and unable to make good decisions or whatever else you're finding. Uh, and so you're having this discussion at church, hoping that God will be equipping you so that you can do better in the rest of your life. That's brilliant. That's why Mads is coming to teach us how to do those coffee convos well. Um, first sort of suggestion, don't do what we're doing here. <laughs> Don't start with advice. As one who, more than ever in my life this year, I've had to share my pain and vulnerability over the last year, um, which has been a whole, I suppose, really good and dreadful experience. Uh, I can tell you, as I'm sure many of you would be able to concur, if you have been in pain at any stage and you're brave enough to share that with people like the Bible tells you to, and their first response is, well, here's what you ought to do about that. You're like... Thank you, lesson learned. I'm never talking to you again. Because our role surely is to listen first. And in fact, that's probably in most cases enough. And then possibly to start to ask some questions. And my favorites, and if you remember nothing else from anything that's about to come, would be, hey, what do you need Jesus to be for you right now? That's, if you can figure out how to memorize that question, ask it, you are a million times more useful than most people on earth. What do you think Jesus needs to be for you right now? And then if you want to motivate them to action, go, what do you think might you look like if you let Jesus be that? Conversation done. You've done your job. That's the vast majority of what you need to do. However, because we are going to try to understand some stuff and learn some things today, I'm not going to take that advice. Uh, and instead, I'm going to share a bunch of things even though I don't really know where you're at. And so I beg your forgiveness for that uh, if you're in pain and there's some talking head on your screen or on your stage telling you some stuff. But we know that we're in the grip of a mental health pandemic, right? We know that. That never before, I think, certainly in our lifetimes, have as many people been taking as much strain with what's going on between their ears. We're finding ourselves stressed. We're finding ourselves, all of us, with far less elastic than we usually do, what the psychologists call our surge capacity. Uh, and so you might most days feel okay, but it doesn't take very much for you to snap into anger or despair or kind of out-of-control self-talk in your mind. We realize that, that we're 
we're taking strain. We're in the midst of a mental health pandemic, not just because the average person has diminished capacity for life struggles, but because even though South Africa is woefully underdiagnosed, we're told that there's more than one out of six people who are needing professional help for anxiety or depression. We know, you heard in the first week, that 60% of South Africans are experiencing post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD disorder, sorry, not syndrome. And that's, again, probably the most ridiculously conservative set of numbers you'll hear. It's no doubt much more than that, because we've been living in uncertainty and loss for so long. Okay, That's out there. And what we know is that the mental health professionals are saying, church, please help us out. Please help us. There are nowhere near enough of us. We're headed for a disaster. Our nation is full of people who are in places that they're not equipped to be mentally. You guys can really help us. Church of Jesus, shine like we've heard you want to and help us and care for our nation. But it's not just out there, is it? We can talk about stats and people out there, but I know that there'll be some of you here today who have had that experience of waking up in the morning and it feels like, your face has had an injection of local anesthetic, and the energy it would require to produce the smile that you think your kids want feels like it might break your heart to have to produce that energy, right? I know. Or that moment where you think, if I have to be asked my opinion on another thing, I may scream, because I don't know what I want. Stop asking me what I want. That feeling like, I need everything to change right now because nothing about this is okay. And so even if it's self-sabotage, even if it all ends up worse, I just need to change everything because that's all I can kind of figure out to do. There's some of you who are finding yourselves getting angry and you're like, who is this person saying these words and I think my mom's voice and stuff that she used to say to me, where did that come from? Right? Where you're having to take naps, where you're like, who takes naps? Or there's far too much Netflix, or far too much food, or far too much um, liquid medicine. And you've discovered, like many, that in fact, sorrows are buoyant. You can't drown them. (laughs) They float. (laughs) Punks. So it's not just out there. It's not like, oh, shame, South Africa's struggling, and we should sort of, in a very theoretical way, discuss how we can help them. It's us. It's you and I. You're either in absolute need of some professional help or you have such diminished capacity that it wouldn't take much. And yet, God, throughout time, has been loving his people through these moments. Throughout time, Jesus has been what you need in these moments. And so for all the treatment we may need for our symptoms, the root causes can and always have been solved in God. It's incredibly good news. And so today we're going to go from sort of what's going on and diagnosis into treatment. What can we actually do to make things better? That's our topic for today. And so this sermon is called Joy is Scalable. That phrase has stuck in my mind for years now, that joy can be scaled up. Jesus says to his disciples at one stage later in his ministry, I've told you these things so that your joy may be full. Which grabs my attention because most of us have been taught to believe that joy is binary, on or off. You either have it or you don't. And in circumstances like we're suffering through, injustices like we've experienced, whatever else is in your story, you might go, well, I don't have joy, and how could I be expected to have joy under these circumstances? I need that massive change. I need someone to fight on my behalf. I need everything to flick 
so that the zero can turn into a one, so that I can now have joy because I don't have it. Jesus says, I've told you a bunch of stuff so that I can scale your joy up. It's not that you do or don't have it. There's a continuum. We can, we can gently turn the ship around. Don't despise the day of small beginnings, says the Word of God. It can start subtly. It can start unexpectedly. In fact, Ross was saying in the first week, our brains are incredibly unreliable at telling us what will actually make us happy. You are not an expert on what will make you happy. And so we can say, well, firstly, joy can be scaled up, but then we also need to admit the places that it starts, we're probably not expert at. The places where joy begins, we probably don't know very well. And so we're going to need some help. We're going to need some good advice. We're going to need to be open to the idea that joy may crop up for you in your life in unexpected places. And it may start slowly, but it can build up ahead of steam. We're not waiting for someone to flick the switch on. We're not abdicating responsibility. We're saying, okay, there is a problem out there. There is a problem in here. If there are some things I can start to do to turn this ship around, wherever they are, I'm prepared to look, God, because you are the expert on how my heart works. Okay, so joy is scalable. Um, and the sort of byline for this sermon, and I know that this is all a little bit sort of self-important to give t- titles and things, but... Does anyone remember that band, Faithless? Okay, it doesn't matter if you don't. Um, but th- they have this amazing line. It says, um, one swallow doesn't make a summer, but tomorrow has to start somewhere. Uh, that phrase, one swallow doesn't make a summer, I suppose in Durban you'd have to say one yellable kite doesn't make a summer, right? So these are the migrant birds that they, when they start to turn up, that tells you, well, when they're all here, summer's here. <laughs> when they're not here, it's clearly not summer. When you start to see one or two, can you take that as a sign that it's summer? And faith is going, oh, well, the phrase says, one swallow doesn't make a summer. Don't get ahead of yourself. But actually, tomorrow's got to start somewhere. And so we today are going to try and spot a few swallows. We're going to spot a few little migrants who are coming from the place of joy and love and light. And we're going to say, we see you, and we're going to follow you towards a happy day for our hearts. In 1967, there was a massive super tanker by the name of the Torrey Canyon, three football fields long, wide enough for seven lanes of traffic to drive up and down its deck. And it was one of the most advanced ships in the world at the time, 1967. And it's rounding the, it's kind of come out of the Mediterranean Sea and it's rounding the bottom of England through the night. Uh, And at six o'clock in the morning, the night watch guy is expecting to see, and only in England could they call some islands this, the Silly Isles off to his right, okay? The Silly Isles are kind of bottom left of England. They're, they're quite a way off the coast of England, uh, away from Land's End, if you've ever heard of that. Um, and you can go between the Silly Isles and England, or you can go around the Silly Isles. Big super tankers who are being smart tend to go around. Let's not fiddle with rocks and potential shipwreck, okay? We're going to go around the Silly Isles. So he was expecting, as the sun came up, to see the Silly Islands on his right, because they were going to go out around the outside. Is this making sense? I'm sorry, I don't have a map. Um, however, the night watchman gets a fright, because as the sun comes up and as he turns the radar on, he gets his first bearing on the city Isles, and they're off to the left. Crumbs, we're headed for the channel, which I don't think the captain wanted us to go through. So he changes course on this massive super tanker to send it back out to the left to get around the island. There was still time. And then he radios down to the skipper, who I think was just waking up, saying, look, I found the Silly Islands off to port instead of starboard. Now you know cool nautical terms. Um, so I've changed our heading so that we can pass the islands to 
seaward. In other words, we'll be on the outside of them. Okay? Um, and the captain, in his Italian accent, Captain Ruggioli, says, no, man, don't be silly. Let's just stick on the original course. We'll just pass the islands on the inside. Not the worst idea. Supertankers had done it. Not the plan initially, but hey. So the, the watchman mate, whatever he was, put the ship back where it was headed. But the problem is between the Silly Isles and England, Land's End, quite close to the Silly Isles, is a reef called the Seven Rocks. And that reef is kind of closer to the islands than it is to the mainland, but it's kind of exactly where the tanker is headed. Now, these are well-known. They're charted. Everyone knows about them. In fact, you can't put a lighthouse on these rocks because they're submerged a lot of the time, but there's a boat that bobs right next to them all day long with a light going. Everyone knows about the Seven Rocks, just like everyone knows about the Silly Isles. And so the captain comes on deck, and they're headed for sort of... They're probably going to graze the rocks at this point. But first problem... The dude that's been taking the measurements the whole time of exactly where they are is new and not very good. And you can see lots of uh, eraser marks where he's sort of taken a bearing and you're like, oh, I'm not sure we're actually there, maybe we're over here. And it's kind of a bit of guesswork. Um, the second problem is that although conditions are perfect, visibility is perfect, and the end of the story is a super tanker drives into well-known rocks in a perfectly sunny, clear day. But the problem is there is a current and a wind working together, drifting the ship off to its right. So the captain comes on deck and goes, oh, okay, this is fine. I actually want to go between the Silly Islands and the Seven Rocks. Narrow channel. Possible, but like now we're talking slightly risky. And so he starts to move the ship left now. So the Silly Islands are coming past us on our left. This reef's in front of us, and he says, well, let's go, let's go between the two. Instead of all this massive ocean off to the right between England and here, let's take this little narrow gap. Doable, not wise. And he's still trusting this third mate who's taking all these bad markings and rubbing them out the whole time. He thinks he knows where he is. Then at some point, he sees this mate running back and forth and taking more and more bearings. And he goes, what are you doing? Why are you running around so much? And he goes, oh, Captain, I'm... And he has a look at the guy's charts and goes, oh, crumbs, we don't know where we are. You clearly have no idea where we are. Quickly, take a bearing off the little light ship. And then he discovers, oh, Gosh, we're really quite close to these rocks. Not to worry, I'll just ramp up the turn ever so slightly. But then he sees some fishing nets. He doesn't want to damage the fishing nets, and there's a trawler, and he doesn't really want to inconvenience the trawler, so he delays his turn just a little longer. Now it's getting quite tight. He's also not worked out that the little turn that he started has not been doing much because the current and the wind are slowly shifting the ship to the right. So although he thinks he's turning to the left of the rocks, He's not really sure, and because of the third mate taking bad bearings, he doesn't know exactly where he really is. Then, finally, the mate, after he said, go and take a bearing off the ship because you're taking hopeless bearings off the island, comes back with his new absolutely reliable bearing, and it's like, we are in serious trouble. Not to worry, let's just swing the steering wheel, if that's what you have on a super tanker, hard left. And here's what's really interesting about this story. At some point during all these processes, the captain has kept putting the ship's steering back onto what we would call autopilot. So he sets the new bearing, and then he locks the steering back onto autopilot. In this moment of crisis, he doesn't realize he's still on autopilot. So he swings the steering wheel, thinks, well, that should sort things out, then goes back off to the charts to try and get a proper fix or to the radio or whatever. And then he notices after a while that he's not hearing something he should be hearing, which is the sound of the compass going click, 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 click as the ship is turning. It's not clicking. 
And he runs back to the steering wheel. Now the rocks are really close. And he goes, two minutes ago, I swung the thing over hard left, and we still haven't moved. Is our rudder not working? He starts checking fuses. No, the fuses are fine. Has a pump broken in the engine room? He phones up the engine room, except he misdials in his panic. He phones the kitchen. They say, Captain, what would you like for breakfast? And at that point, he notices that the dial is still set to autopilot. And he says some very unkind things about God. And this three football field long, seven lane of traffic wide, super tanker smashes into the seven rocks. Now that story is dreadful. By the end of that very day, there was an oil stick 20 miles long. It was the biggest oil spill up until that point in history. All of the south of England, most of France got covered in dreadful, sticky, toxic, crude oil. But I want us to stick with that story a little as we go to Scripture. Because you've got a situation that's looming. From six in the morning, things are already clearly wrong. But the captain keeps thinking, oh, but the original plan will be fine. The original plan will be fine. And there were so many opportunities where he could have gone, this is a bad idea. Let's just bail off to the right. The current's pushing us there anyway. But he had bad information. He had some bad assumptions. And then there's a point when it starts to get too late. And they could still have saved it. But autopilot overrode. And human beings are like supertankers in many ways. Your brain isn't keen to change. Your brain prefers the original plan. Your brain puts a lot of stuff on autopilot that you would really prefer to have on manual at the moment. And there were moments when they could have changed over and over again. They saw, but at some point it's like, well, I don't want to inconvenience these shipping trawlers. Or I don't want to damage some fishing nets, even though in 20 minutes' time, most of the sort of west of Europe is going to be covered in crude oil, but I don't want to inconvenience, right? And we may, oh, but I don't want to, I don't want to inconvenience my boss. I don't want to waste their time. I, I, I don't know if I quite have the money to, to, to go and see a doctor. And we make these dwarf decisions because autopilot tells us, well, just stick to the original plan. It'll probably work. And there is a shipwreck coming. And you take time to turn. And when you've done it right, to start with, not a lot feels like it's changed, but a super tanker slowly but surely can change. You can change course if we're prepared to flick the thing on manual, if we're prepared to admit our fault, if we're prepared to go, I've been taking wrong bearings, I've been getting this wrong, if we're not too stubborn to do that. Okay? So, I'm reminded of a, a psalm. Um, there are a whole lot of psalms that we've been going to. I'm afraid this one kind of landed for me over the weekend, so I didn't want to rash anyone to put a slide up. Um, there'll be other scriptures in a moment, but this one is the very first verse of the very first psalm, which says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. They delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on a day and night. And it goes on to describe how those people who don't follow bad advice, stand around with sinners, or join into the criticism of mockers, the people who don't do that, but instead delight on the Lord, they'll go on to be like trees planted next to rivers who are able to produce fruit in and out of season, and their leaves never wither, and they're, they're styling, right? And that just kind of grabbed my attention this last few days as I was preparing to share some of these practical ideas of well, how can we start fighting for joy, is that the inverse of that, instead of choosing joy, I can choose to follow bad advice. I can choose to stand around with sinners. Sin being my faulty assumptions about the things that will make me happy that don't give God any glory, right? I take my desires, and instead of pointing them towards God, I point them towards other stuff. That's all sinners. You just miss 
the, direct, the direction. You miss the mark of where your satisfaction will genuinely come from. If I'm given in to just ill-disciplined ways of getting my desires met. Or, interestingly, if I hang around with mockers, if I give myself to all this criticism and scoffing that goes on, well then, don't expect to be like the people who delight in the Lord. If you want to do the sinning, if you want to do the mocking, if you want to follow bad advice, then don't blame me if you're not finding yourself planted next to a river, delighting yourself in God with leaves that don't wither and fruit that's ready in the right times. And so today, we're going to look at some good advice, we're going to repent of some sin, and we're going to commit ourselves to no longer scoff and criticize like the mockers do. Ready? Okay. I have discovered that confessing sin is one of those little swallows that turns up unexpected start of summer. Okay? I don't know that it's possible for you to be defrauding your employer and for you to simultaneously have all the joy you could possibly have in God. In fact, I'm convinced it's impossible. I don't think it's possible to be sleeping with the person you're dating and to simultaneously have all the joy that's on offer from God. I think it is patently impossible for me to give myself to gossiping about other people and to experience all the joy that God has available for me. I think it is absolutely reliable that if I allow myself to look at pornography, I will have less joy in my life. I think that's a law like gravity. I know it to be true. So if that's the case in the best of times, when we're in a global mental health pandemic, how much less can we afford that stuff? And you can say, well, the tide's against me. The wind is blowing me. It's not my fault. The third mate gave me bad information. But if you are still sinning, friends, how do you expect to have all the joy that's available in God? Right now, I don't know about you, I can't afford to give any away. I need all of it. And the scriptures tell us that confessing your sins to one another is how you get healed. I'm going to show you a few Psalms where David says, God, when I confess myself to you, you restore to me the joy of my salvation. If you're hoping for summer to turn up, if you're trying to spot some yellow kites or some swallows, one of them might be in the form of confess some sin, repent from some sin, remove some unhealthy stuff from your life, and watch. The next thing you know, you're going to be a tree next to a stream with your toes in the water, fruitful, able to be a source of strength to others. This is not because we're prudes. This is not because we want people to feel guilty. That's ridiculous. We want people to be joyful and able to produce joy. And so Jesus says, well, I've given you these words so that your joy might be full. I've told you this stuff so that you can experience full joy. Psalm 51 is going to come up behind me. And this is where David starts repenting from sin. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Let's just look at Psalm 51 for a second. David is recognizing that when you're in depression or some version of that, you can't even hear joy. Have you had that experience? It's like, I can't even bear to see people who seem happy and successful right now. I can't even bear to look at them. Don't tell me about how well your life is going. It's offensive. 
even though those are the people that you need to be moving towards, those are the people who might be a source of strength in your life. You're like, ah, I want to hang out with other mockers who can go, yeah, this place really sucks. It's not our fault. David's going, no, I do want to be able to hear joy again. Uh, I do want to experience your goodness again. These bones which you have crushed, God, I want them to rejoice. Fascinating. There are some interesting medical correlations between depression and damage to your bones. But beyond that, there's another glaring thing here, which David is saying, God, you crushed these bones. You've allowed me to be crushed in this bad way that I'm living. Your God loves you so much that when you're doing things that are bad for you, he lets them hurt you. When you are doing things that are bad for you, your Father who loves you so much lets them hurt you so that you stop doing those things. And so David's saying, my bones have been crushed because of my ridiculous way of living. Lord God, will you please renew them? Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. This is the amazing thing about confessing sin. This is the great sort of unfair advantage that Christians have is that we get to call Satan's bluff. He's saying, keep it hidden because once you've exposed it, that's going to be the most interesting thing about you. That's all God's going to want to talk to you about is the stuff that's wrong with you. And God is saying, tell me about it so that I can remind you how forgiven you actually are. And so we get to call Satan's bluff and say, God, this is what's going on in my heart. These are the lies I've believed. These are the shortcuts I've taken. These are the, the ways I've gone about satisfying my desires that dishonor you. I want you to know about them. And then God will blot them out. David says, create in me a pure heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And you know what's so amazing about confession, what I've discovered, is that not only do you get to remind yourself how forgiven you are, not only do you get to experience the pleasure of God as he wraps you up saying, I'm so glad you were finally brave enough to tell me about that thing. Actually, I knew already, and it's okay. I've paid for it already. But then, when you do that, and this is why this is worth doing, don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, verse 11. See, my ability to experience the presence of God is hampered by my unconfessed sin. We're not going to go into fancy theology about this. Please just believe me. In fact, you don't need to. You already know this. If you have any sense of what the presence of God is like, you know that when you are living in a way that you know hurts Him, when you're living in a way that you know hurts yourself and you continue to do it, the presence of God is incredibly hard to sense incredibly hard to access. Now, when you're depressed, it's hard enough to feel God. We don't need that, right? As I said, I need every scrap of joy I can get. I can't afford to waste any. So God is going, confess your sin so I can remind you just how forgiven you are, so you can call your accusers bluff. And then, joy of joys, as you do that, not only do you get reminded of your forgiveness, but then you get to experience my presence again. And this works as reliably as sin stopping me from experiencing joy. When you confess sin, when you receive the forgiveness of God, you experience the undiluted joy of his presence, which is exactly what you need. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. There are some other swallows, which I'm about to tell you about in a moment. Now, I don't know if this feels forced or if you're not quite ready, but I want to take a second, even just for my own sake, to do some repentance. We don't always teach each other how to do this, but repentance is this incredible unfair advantage that Christians have. And so, if you are willing, I'm going to ask you in just a second to close your eyes, and then all I'm going to ask you to do is, in private, is to name some stuff in your mind that you know 
have hurt you and have hurt God are things he doesn't want of you. He's given you a conscience. He's put a spirit inside you. You know what these things are already. And what we're saying is that if we choose to just stubbornly keep going and saying, well, this is not so bad. Other people do worse. You're like Captain Riggioli on the Tory Canyon who's saying, oh, but my plan is probably fine. My plan is probably fine. So close your eyes with me. And God of all forgiveness, mighty, merciful, loving God, we're going to bring some stuff before you right now. Whether it's things we've done or left undone, whether it's things we've said or left unsaid, it's the thoughts of our minds, it's the things we've done with our eyes, stuff we've done with our hands in this world. Where we just know it's not of you. It hurts your heart and it's bad for us. We're going to confess it now. And as you think of those things, we're going to say to God, let me hear your joy and gladness again, please, Father. Let these bones that have felt crushed start to rejoice. Hide your face from our sins, God. Blot out all of our iniquity. Please create in us a pure heart. And please put your steadfast spirit within us. Please don't cast us from your presence as much as we may think we deserve that. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from us as much as we may have grieved him. But restore to us, God, the joy of our salvation. Lord Jesus, please grant me and all of my friends here a willing spirit to sustain us. Now what you've just done and if you can continue to do that, is already one whole flock of yellow-billed kites pulling in for summer, okay? That is the beginning of so much of the presence of God and joy in your life that there is not enough Prozac in this world to keep up with what you've just done. There are not enough serotonin reuptake inhibitors to compete. And that's just point one, okay? So there are some other things that I've discovered that can cause you joy. There's some other ways that you can scale up joy. And I mentioned a moment ago that when you're in bad space, your feelings are like a little bit numb a lot of the time. And much of church conversation about how you experience God talks, I suppose, slightly subjectively about feeling His presence. And if your feelings are slightly untrustworthy, then can I just set you free? Christianity still works without feelings. It can still work without feelings. And what that means, friends, is that some of the hyper-romanticized ideas we might have about what it's like to be with God, aren't necessary. Of course there are moments of undiluted joy. Of course there are moments of thrill in his presence. But even without that stuff, God can still be enough in your life. Remember Jesus said, I have told you these things so that your joy may be full. The word of God is enough. We have more. We have more. Don't get me wrong. We have all the emotive richness of being in the presence of God, but the word of God is actually enough. And so when David again says in Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. He's not talking about touchy-feely stuff that you can set to music. He's talking about the word of God, the truth. When Job in 
absolute despair, says, I will still have this consolation. My joy in unrelenting pain is that I've not denied the words of the Holy One. The Word of God is enough. And in some of my bleakest moments this year, when it's like, I, I, don't even, I can't get my feelings there, that doesn't mean you're a second-class Christian. If your feelings aren't helping you, leave them for dead. They can come back online later on when they're more used to you. But right now, the Word of God is enough. And can I just suggest, the Psalms and the Gospels are all you need. Make them like medicine. Take them every day. And just like a super tanker, it doesn't turn immediately. Go read chapter 1 of Mark tomorrow. Go read chapter 2 of Mark the next day. Chapter 3 the following day. By the end of the week, you may just have heard the compass click once. Don't stop. Keep going. And a month from now, if you've been reading the Bible and meeting Jesus, if your ship hasn't turned, please come and ask for your money back. But I have never experienced it not to work. The Word of God is enough. Remember, unexpected places. Your brain is not reliable at telling you where happiness is. You don't think in that moment at the end of the day when you're knackered and life sucks that reading a bit of the Bible could be more good for you than Netflix. But when you think about it right now, what idiot would leave that choice on autopilot? And there is absolute food for your soul in just going back to the stuff Jesus has said. There are two other things that I think are little swallows or little yellow gold cuts that I just want you to pay attention to. So we're confessing sin, and we're doing it gleefully because we know how good it is for us. We're starting to expect that the Word of God can actually fuel us and cause all the neurons to start firing, even if it takes a little while to get some momentum going. The third thing that I want you to do that I, I don't think I would have survived this year without is praying with people. Again, I think we have had... It taught to us that prayer is only this private thing. Prayer must be private, because if you're not doing it alone, you're going to struggle to do it with people. But prayer should never end there, friends. The Psalms, which we keep going to in this series, were the public prayer book and hymn book of the people of God. That they read these things together and prayed these things together all the time. You were designed to pray with people out loud. That's part of what the people of God have always been doing. I know that's intimidating. But I had this crazy friend who throughout this year has been phoning me, and it generally takes about five calls before I answer because I know it's going to be a slightly long conversation when he calls. But it's not actually a conversation, and I do always answer in the end because what he does is he says, hey, Paul, how are you doing? It's not really important. I want to pray with you. And then he just prays with me over the phone. He just starts talking to God about me over the phone, and I just sit on the other end and sometimes cry and sometimes smile and always feel the flutter of a little sparrow coming past, or swallow, or whatever the metaphor is. Praying with people, Burn and I, Burn's my wife, we've t taken turns to be kind of absolutely broken this year, I think. And um, when I can't find words to pray, and I think you may know what that's like, and I hope you don't, but if you do, when you're feeling so low that you can't even move the muscles to start praying, you have two great gifts. You have the Psalms, and you can just go and read them and mechanically get the process of prayer going. But if you know someone, maybe you live with them, maybe you're married to them, maybe you've got them at the end of the phone, when it's her turn, because I'm broken, then Burn just starts praying. And can I tell you, 
that that just drives out the darkness so fast you won't believe? That just having someone sit next to you and just pray, just bring a heavenly perspective to what you're in, does sort so much out. And if it's her turn to be broken, and then this was just, I mean, this is recent, like three days ago. And then it was my turn to be the one who could just, mid-conversation, you can be rude about it, just interrupt whatever was going on. It doesn't matter if the food gets cold. This is more important. You just start praying. And at first, the other person might actually scream or even, scream, is that a word? Um, And be squeamish, I don't know, and, and resist because there's some spirit in you that would prefer to remain irresponsible and bleak because actually we quite like our sadness because it makes us feel powerful because we think we're victims and that's powerful, right? And when someone starts praying, you're like, well, let's just turn off all that sympathy that you've been giving yourself and go to God. Jesus, what do you want to be for us right now? What might we look like if we let you be that? What are you actually up to here? Let's remember all the amazing things you've done for us before because you can't pray for very long before you run out of stuff to say if you don't want to talk about who God is and what he's been like to you. And as soon as you start to speak that stuff out, your words have power. And so you get to pray together. And then there's all sorts of other unexpected stuff like serving because it's more blessed to give than receive and celebrating with people even when you don't feel like it and community. And the list could go on. There's lots in the Bible. But the final one I want to leave you with is, in fact, the one that only you know. Every one of you will know something that causes you joy. So the reason I stuck with that tagline of one swallow doesn't make a summer is because I think it's quite amazing when Jesus is trying to reassure us to not worry about money. He says, consider the birds. Like literally, look at the birds. And there have been days where, particularly at my toilet, the little window behind it looks out on our fence. And they're little, I think they're finches that spend a lot of time there. And I'm a sort of outdoorsy person. So the thing that I know, well, let me say If I thought joy was binary, it's either off or on, then I would be tempted to think, well, if I can't go on a big adventure and be in the mountains, I can't have joy, because that's my thing. But I can't get to the mountains right now, but I can get to my toilet. (laughs) And out the window, there may not be fish eagles swooping, but there is a little finch. And I have found myself committing, sometimes reluctantly, often thinking, this is so doof, I'm such an embarrassment, but I'm going to spend 10 minutes, 10 whole minutes, that's a... That's a lot of stops at a red light. That's a long time. And I'm just going to consider the birds and look at that little swallow. And you know he will finch in this case. And in the words of Faithus, well, tomorrow does actually start somewhere. And you may have something like that. It may be tea with a certain person. It may be painting something. And you'll have your big extreme version, the full fat. This is the thing that I know really brings me joy. But joy is scalable. The ship can turn slowly, and you don't get to say, well, because I don't have a whole weekend to do that thing, therefore, I'm stuck. God invites us. There is something you can start doing right now. Friends, there is something you can start doing right now. You can confess some sin. Amazing. What a joy. What a privilege. You can read the Word of God. You always have it. Many people have died so that you have the Word of God. You've got it, this incredible treasure. You can find someone to pray with. All three of those things will work brilliantly. It will work wonders. There's something else that only you love to do that God has wired into you. It's a source of joy for you. And you don't get to say, well, because I can't do all of it, I'm not going to do any of it. Joy is scalable. Consider the birds. Go spend some time. And if you don't have one, then just take mine. I promise you, looking at little birds for a while will do a lot of good. Because at the end of the day, long before there were psychologists as grateful as we are for them, long before there was medicine, as much of a gift of God as that is to us. Long before there was 
all sorts of wonderful support systems which we currently have. The people of God have always been able to go to some cave and write a psalm and find God was there, able to be what they needed. And so it may be everyone else's fault. It may not be your fault at all. But it is your problem, and there are some things you can do. And it's time for us to start. Lord Jesus, we are going to choose joy. Because you tell us to. You command us to rejoice always. And so we're going to take some responsibility for fighting our way back to our joy, no matter how long it takes for our feelings to catch up. Thank you so much for this reminder and for caring enough and loving us enough to give us this responsibility in our own lives, to guard our hearts, to manage our joy. We're going to follow you now into more of it. Amen. Amen. Have a lovely day. Nice to be with you.